Genesis 4, 1 through 16, and 25 through 26. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When, the work, when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer of, on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I, will, I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Scott. I'm the pastor at Emmanuel. Very glad to be with you today uh, and want to extend a special greeting to anybody who may be relatively new or visiting with us, somebody that uh, I may not have gotten the chance to meet in person. Meeting over Zoom has been good, but it's less than ideal, and if you're relatively new, uh, I encourage you to reach out to me or one of the leaders of the church. You can find our information on the website. Introduce yourself. And normally, as a church, we really want to get to know people. We want to focus on community. It's a little bit harder at this time period, but we're still uh, striving for it. So uh, I encourage all of us to be reaching out to one another. Uh, this year, one of the things that we're going to be doing as a church is reflecting on our own stories, the story of the church, the story of Christianity, and uh, seeing how we can make our lives line up so that they're more hopeful. One of the, the kinds of stories I was reflecting on this week are stories where people propose uh, to, have, to get engaged so somebody would marry them. And I don't know how it's happened, but it seems like in recent years, proposing has become more of a phenomenon. I think, you know, the basic just asking a question, will you marry me? A little bit was brought into it with the surprise, if I could surprise the person, but now that's gone to a whole new level. And it's fun to hear stories where uh, somebody proposing has planned kind of an elaborate event that involved other people and all sorts of things. And often in those stories, there are tensions where things don't necessarily 
go right and then the person is trying to control the plan to get to the outcome. <laughs> my, my plan is to surprise the person by asking to marry them, but things go wrong. So for example, uh, somebody plans a number of events and at one of the places, there are people waiting, who friends who will come out and video it and bring a cake and balloons or whatever the case is. And then at one place, the person who does not know they're being proposed to, presumably, says, you know what, I'm, feel I'm not feeling well. I think I just want to go home. <laughs> and then there's the, the panic. How do I get this person to go there? And it's this sensitive thing. I can't be mean and force them to go and insist because I'll ruin the fun thing that's going to happen. On the other hand, this plan needs to happen, so I can't just concede. And in that moment, you know, how do you experience that? Well, sometimes I've heard stories where the person being proposed to starts to speculate. There's enough unusual things going on. Something seems off. They start to wonder, maybe today's the day. You know, we've been talking about marriage. We've been talking about all these things, so it's not an utter surprise, but, but maybe today's the day. So then, with that suspicion, that awkward I know you want to go home, but I really think it's important to go there. Maybe you're willing to play along with it a bit. I've also heard stories where the person didn't know, <laughs> didn't want to play along, wound up frustrated. But then as it all comes together, it, it puts a different light on everything that happened. The reason I was acting weird, the reason I was kind of pushing things, the reason I didn't seem as concerned that you weren't feeling well or whatever the issue was, was because I really had this greater thing planned. And, and, and so the... The details of what happens in the story uh, are important or are shaped by the broader story, what's happening. If this is a proposal story, then even if things are difficult, awkward, if there's a little bit of forcing and, and arguing happening, but the outcome is good, then you realize it was a whole different thing. The, the opposite can be the case where somebody is, you know, in a relationship is insisting, I know you don't want to do this, but I'm going to make you do it. But then it winds up, there's no good reason for it. It was just selfishness. And that, that creates a very different kind of story, a very different kind of experience, a different kind of context. And so uh, the story of Christianity is fundamentally hopeful. And it's not a promise that all of the details of our lives will go well, that our lives will be easy, that we'll avoid tragedy. But, but where is everything going? Is everything going someplace? And is there hope for everyone who will follow Christ? And what we're told is yes, which means that along the way there are surprises, confusion, whatever the case is, but we're going somewhere and that makes a big difference as opposed to just this life being what it is and you make the most of it and all of a sudden tragedy just uh, renders everything meaningless or disappointment is overwhelming. The Bible begins with two stories, the story of Genesis 1 and then the story of Genesis 2 through 4. Now, Genesis 2 through 4 has a lot happening in it, so we tend not to think of that as one story. We think of it as a series of stories, three different things. Uh, but for our purposes, I think that the Bible opens up with these two stories, setting this trajectory for the rest of the Bible. Genesis 1 is the story of God creating all things from nothing. It's a story about God's power. But one of the things that we see is God's goodness. And so the exercise of his power is good. And so the result is wisdom. There, there's, there's a world that's orderly and productive. And there's, there's tasks of being fruitful and multiplying and, and filling with wonder and, and excellence. Then Genesis 2 through 4 tells a different story. It tells a story of, of things going wrong. And so Genesis 2 has a has creation from a different angle, but it's, it's a personal angle. It's, it's God forming Adam, humanity, from the ground and breathing life, the spirit into him, and speaking to him, and instructing him, and explaining things. 
But then Genesis 3 is the story of Adam and Eve, where they're deceived, they're tempted. They don't trust God, they turn from God, and it winds up being ruinous. And today we're going to look at Genesis 4, which flows out of this, where then what does this ruinous life look like? What does it look like when people don't trust God? What, what does it look like when our pride and our selfishness overwhelm us? Well, it looks like murder in Genesis 4. Genesis 4 can be a helpful passage for you if you find yourself either new to Christianity or trying to make, under, make sense of how Christianity uh, works. Genesis 2 and 3 are really important in terms of understanding the Christian story, the whole story of the Bible. But some of you read Genesis 3 and you think there's these two naked people and a, talking to a snake. How is that supposed to shape my understanding of me and my life? And so what happens there is profound. If you study that passage, if you study the Bible, if you reflect on human history, in that chapter, so much is there, and yet it's, a, it's another place. It's the Garden of Eden. It's a place we don't have access to. Genesis 4 could be helpful for you then, because Genesis 4 tells essentially the same story as Genesis 3. It's not exactly the same, um, but it tells the story of people where where temptation and evil come in, where God has spoken but is not listened to, where it's disastrous and the end result is being cast away from God and and all of the terrible effects. And so we're looking at Genesis 4 today as we begin a series in the book of Ecclesiastes. So for the next few months, for the fall and the winter, uh, the early part of the winter, we're going to just go chapter by chapter through Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is a book for helping us gain wisdom. It's part of the wisdom literature. But it's wisdom coming from the experience of somebody who's struggling with life in this world. Uh, You know, somebody who lives in the Genesis 4 world. So when you think of the wisdom tradition, the book of Proverbs, for example, connects well with Genesis 1. If we understand the order of things and the goodness of things and cause and effect, and if you make good decisions, things will go better for you. And if you make bad decisions and you're foolish and you don't learn, they won't go well. And so Proverbs helps us gain wisdom. But many of you try it and you find there's continual failure, there's continual disappointment, or you find you don't understand and you can't control. Well, then Ecclesiastes is the book for you. Um, The more I learn, the less I can grasp. The more I try, the, the, the more it seems is outside of my control, and therefore everything seems ephemeral. <laughs> That's FT's word. Everything seems meaningless, like vapor. Um, life is there, and I want to grasp it and live it in the fullest, but, but I'm not experiencing joy because nothing satisfies me. My, my work is not being productive in any way that it feels like it's leading to things. There's injustice, and that troubles me. These are the themes of Ecclesiastes, and this is exactly what we're going through in this pandemic. <laughs> um, are we being productive? Uh, the things that used to satisfy us now are not satisfying us. Injustice is troubling us, and death casts a shadow over everything. It's a hard book to walk through, but if we're willing to learn, the time we spend in it will not only help us to see that some of the confusion, some of the frustrating frustration we're experiencing now, um, if, if, if that's what, what your existence is, if Ecclesiastes will help normalize to say, you're not alone. You're not the only one struggling. But Ecclesiastes has hope throughout. And as we do a Christian reading, we will see that, that, that in the midst of this struggle, the book is, is helping move us somewhere and is showing us that the, the biblical story goes somewhere. I'm going to begin with Genesis 4, though, because I think Genesis 4 is part of the narrative background. Genesis 1 to 4, if you're really familiar with it, you'll understand Ecclesiastes better. Um, but But Genesis 4 in particular, I think, can be helpful. So we're just going to begin, and I'm going to highlight a few things here from this passage. 
that will help set up the sermon series. Where I want to begin is, here's the first thing, we're overwhelmed by sin. Part of life in this world is sin is a, is a force at work. It's in us and it's around us and it's ruinous. And it leaves people trying to live good lives, satisfying lives, meaningful lives, confused. And you start to wonder, does this work? Is it, is it worth being good? Is there any meaning or am I just grasping at nothing? Um, we see that in, in the introduction of this character, Cain. So Cain is born to Adam and Eve and Eve with excitement at his birth names him Cain, a word which means gotten. Um, this is a gift. I've gotten somebody from the Lord. I've gotten a, a, a son. Um, but there's an irony in his name that Cain is somebody that is somebody who goes and gets. He's, he's, he's a typical human being, uh, somebody who wants the fullness of life, but in a problematic way. He is, he's a taker. And we find that this is a story where he's willing to take life when things aren't going well for him. And so verse 1 I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. We live in a world where, where this is part of the human instinct, is to go and to get, to take. Um, and we find in this story, God's engagement with, with Cain is, is kind and generous. Now, the, the presenting thing is Abel, his brother, makes offerings that seem satisfying and pleasing to God. And for some reason, Cain's are not. We, we don't know. It would be wonderful to know because our question is, how do I know how to live so that I will please and satisfy God? But that's not what the story is here for. The starting point of the story is Cain has done something that was, that's fallen short. And, and the thing we're watching is, well, how does he deal with it? And so while it would be great to know what was wrong with his sacrifice, we don't know. But we know that God engages him. So in verse 6, the Lord says to Cain, so God speaks, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And so here's Cain, who is... He's, he's told that there's something that's not good enough. He can do better. And for some of us, that, that's all that it takes, whether it pokes our pride or our ambition, whatever it is, falling short already makes us vulnerable. And here's God's kind words. God, God is not saying, that's it, you're done, I'm done with you, I'm angry, I'm disappointed, you're not the, the human being I wanted. He says, you know, why are you angry? If you do well, will you not be accepted? He's, he's encouraging him. And, and yet there's a vulnerability when we feel like we're not good enough, when we failed, um, when people have pointed out our flaws. There's a vulnerability there then, whereas we have the opportunity in those occasions to change, to learn, to grow. That's what the wise do. Most of us are overtaken by the emotion, and he's described as a depressed person. His face has fallen. He's angry. And so the warning in verse 7, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So why am I talking about sin today? Um, it's right there in verse 7. Sin is described here as a force. It's hidden. It's crouching. It, it's, it sees you, and it's waiting. And now that you're vulnerable, you're more, it's more likely that it's going to spring out and surprise you. And, and, and to give Cain wisdom, he says, but, but you need to rule over it. When it jumps out at you, don't let it defeat you, but, but ready yourself. But here's Cain, dejected, angry, frustrated. And maybe he doesn't see it. Maybe he doesn't believe. I don't know. Um, but sure enough, he winds up tempted. He doesn't rule over this, but his anger with God, what was his anger with Abel? As far as we know, nothing. The only thing Abel did was to do something right. 
Abel doesn't speak in the story. We don't hear his perspective. All we know is having done right, Cain, who's now angry, and anger needs an object to land on. So maybe he's angry with God, but you can't kill God, but you could spite God. And so temptation springs upon him that in his anger, he hates his brother and he kills him, which is wrong to Abel, wrong to his parents, wrong to God. And then God gives him a chance. Verse nine, there's a question. Uh, Cain, where is your brother Abel? Now, God knows because later on, God says that the blood of Abel is crying out from the ground. So, so God's not looking for information. God's providing an opportunity. So, so he warned Cain. Cain was overcome with temptation. And in asking the question, so where's your brother? There's an opportunity for Cain to say, I can tell you exactly where he is. Let me explain what happened. Or Lord, forgive me. Or There's a lot of options. But instead, he allows temptation, his pride, his foolishness, his dejection to help him continue in this problematic trajectory and in a snarky way to try to deceive the Lord. Am I my brother's keeper? And so the the Lord gives him an opportunity that he doesn't take. And then in verse 15, even after all that Cain has done in Cain's foolishness, he is overwhelmed by his sin. And what he says is now when I go out there, what's going to happen to me? And in a sense, what he's saying is people are going to do to me what I just did to my brother. And that's terrible. And he hasn't acknowledged his wrong. He is now fearful that people in the world are like him. And yet in verse 15, God speaks as his protector. So there's, a, there's enormous grace constantly being extended to Cain. But this is the nature of human foolishness. When we're, pride, when we're prideful, when we are concerned about our own, the opinions of others, when, when we want to look good, when we don't want to try harder, no matter how people help us, no matter what they do, often we only go from bad to worse. And so, so this is a story of an unraveling. In verse 16 ends uh, that part of the reading, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And so here's this tragedy. What, what is the outcome of this? Cain, who, who God keeps trying to engage, is handed over. Uh, he, evil sin rules over him. He doesn't master it, but he's defeated by it. And he winds up going away from the presence of the Lord. And in the book of Genesis, the naming of things is very important. So Cain is named the one who gets. Uh, the word nod is an interesting, what is the place that he goes to? Well, it means wandering. And there's this irony here that, that having been overcome by evil, Cain settles in the land of nod. He settles in a place of wandering. And what a picture of the human condition that is. <laughs> he settles, but he's not settled. He's, he, he goes to a place away from God, but but it's an unsettled place. It's a place of wandering. And, and that's the picture that the book of Ecclesiastes has for us of this, of this journey where, where we're looking for something to hold on to, to plant roots down into. And, and, and yet uh, things are confusing, things we can't grasp. In. And, and, and when, I, when I'm beginning by talking about how we're overwhelmed by sin, we're meant to see ourselves in Cain's story. So maybe most of us have not committed a literal murder. But all of us, according to the standards of Jesus, when it says you've called somebody a fool, have, have acted out of that same angry pride spirit. We're supposed to see something of, of how when, when, when we're dejected, rather than doing the right thing, we make things worse. We don't trust God. We don't listen. We hate. We resent. We spread everything around. Even if you still want to argue, you're not that bad, that you're not overwhelmed by sin. The reality is we live in a world where sin does overwhelm. And so as far as we know, 
Abel was not a perfect human being, but Abel has done nothing wrong. But if Cain is overwhelmed by sin, it affects Abel. Eve has done something wrong, but Eve had done nothing wrong as far as we know in regards to Cain and Abel. But now when Cain kills Abel, Eve is now overwhelmed. And that's the nature of sin. Even if we could insist none of us are actually guilty of doing sin, which would be a foolish thing to say, we still live in a world where people overcome by sin means we all suffer. And the book of Ecclesiastes helps name some of that reality, that as long as sin comes out from hiding and overtakes people, we are overwhelmed. It, it, it is destabilizing. We start to wonder vanity of vanities. Everything is meaningless, ephemeral. And so um, is there any hope? Here's what I want to talk about next. So the first thing I was talking about is we're overwhelmed by sin. Secondly, we need somebody to lead us. And that's this, this, this settling in the land of Nod, where, where we're settled, but we're still wandering. Uh, we still need help. Sinners need help. We need someone to lead us. And what we're told in the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, where, where the narrator who has presented this story to us, and so Ecclesiastes is a first-person uh, story. It reads a bit like a memoir, except there's somebody else who's presenting the story, and he, he concludes it for us. But, but Ecclesiastes reads as the experience of somebody who says, look, I sought after power, and I, and I had it, but it wasn't satisfying. And I looked at injustice, and it troubled me, and it made me wonder, why should I bother being good? Because I'm going to die like the guilty person. These kinds of questions. And, and we're grappling along, trying to get wisdom. And, and the book ends in, in not the very last verse, but in the, the very last section, Ecclesiastes 12, 11. It says, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. So what is Ecclesiastes even doing in the Bible? Well, there's one shepherd. There's somebody who's walking us through history, God. And these sayings are like goads. See, the book of Proverbs is like, it's like food. <laughs> Come, follow me. The book of Ecclesiastes is like a tool that the shepherd has that pushes sheep along and they don't see it. They just feel the pain. But a good shepherd will move the sheep. And in our trouble, in our confusion, what we're told is the book of Ecclesiastes is not going to be a fun walk. But, but these sayings, the, the wisdom that's offered to us are like goads. It's, it's going it's to hit us where we're stinging. But they're given by one shepherd. In other words, if we're willing to follow God through this book, um, we'll wind up in a better place. Actually, the, the conclusion is not that everything is meaningless. The experience along the way is that it is. Um, and so, so this theme of shepherding is really important throughout the Bible, and, and it's part of what God is doing in Ecclesiastes, but we see it right here in the story, and that's why I'm pulling out that theme from Genesis 4. Uh, when we meet Abel in verse 2, it says, Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep. And one thing we know from the very beginning is, is part of the biblical story, the drama, the narrative, is the one who tends and keeps after the sheep winds up being opposed and assailed and killed and rejected in a number of places in the Bible. And so um, the story of Cain, who becomes the picture of, of the human leader, the one who's successful in the world, the one who gets. And you read uh, what wasn't printed in verse 17 on, Cain's descendants find, they, they found cities and they create culture. But all of it, which is part of the human task, is filled with this desire to get, which means that all of our cultures, all of our cities are places that perpetuate violence. And so when you have somebody who's upright, like Abel, 
in a world where there's Cain, they'll be opposed. And so, so the end of Genesis, Joseph becomes a hero in Egypt, helping save them uh, from starvation and actually helping Egypt to prosper. But then the next book, Exodus, opens up, and there's a Pharaoh who rules like Cain. And then there's Moses who keeps the sheep and tends to the flock. And God raises him up because he's the one who's going to lead people out, out of that kind of leadership. And Moses in Deuteronomy, when he's going to die, says, now God is going to lead you into this new land. All of this shepherding, all of these difficult years, God is bringing you to a place flowing with milk and honey. But when you get there, you're going to look at the surrounding nations and you're going to want to be like them. You're going to want their prosperity. You're going to want to rule like them. And it's a trap. And he says specifically in Deuteronomy, you're going to want kings like the other nations, but don't do it. Because kings and their empires and their power always comes at the expense of the people. You're, you're called to be a different kind of nation. And yet, despite the warning, Israel eventually demands a king. And God gives the prototypical king, David. And what's interesting about David is he doesn't look like the kings of the other nations. We meet him as a young boy. And we meet him as a shepherd. <laughs> and there he is, the one who's fit for ruling. Now, David wound up not being a perfect man. He gives in to the kinds of his echoes of the life of Cain in his rulership. But at the end of the day, his legacy is that he was to, to lead Israel like a shepherd. And, and the reason he was a good king is not because he was a flawless man, but because he knew that the Lord was his shepherd. So he gives us the words of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd and I will not want. He makes me lie down beside green waters. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, his rod and staff comfort me. The rod and the staff, the goads, the one who gives wisdom. It comforts me because I know he's taking me somewhere. And so I want to end this section um, looking at Psalm 121, uh, the section of the, just this point, because there's a contrast with God and the people he raises up, like Abel and Cain, the people of this world who always oppose the one who pleases God. In verse 9, one of the most famous verses or sayings in the Bible, God comes and asks him this question, where's your brother Abel? And verse 9, Cain says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And it's denial. It's, 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 it's snarky. It's distraction. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, Abel in verse 2 is described as a keeper of the sheep. Cain is the one who says, am I my brother's keeper? Now, the word keeper there in Hebrew, two different words. Uh, but the image of the shepherd is the one who keeps the flock. And Cain, in a sense, says, I'm not the keeper. <laughs> Why are you asking about my having responsibility for others? And, and here's the nature of Cain. Cain doesn't take responsibility for others. He takes from others, including their lives. And the model we get is, is where power is exercised in a way that's godly and honorable. And according to his ways, it's somebody who's, who's a keeper. And, and so the word for keeper of the sheep in verse 2 and keeper of my brother are different. But the word in verse 9 where Abel says, am I my brother's keeper? The Hebrew word is, is the same as, as Genesis 2 when God tells Adam and Eve, you should guard and keep the garden. That's part of the human task. We're, we're keepers. We're those who, who have been given power and influence so that we can tend to others, that we could help, that we could lead people along, that we could be a community going somewhere. When Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? There's this defiance to say, I don't keep anything. In a sense, he's saying, I'm committed to being a taker. And so is there hope for us in a world where we will be tempted to be takers? And we will find ourselves saying, but others are better at taking. And so how will I 
be somebody that sin doesn't rule over. Um, Psalm 121, I'm just going to read the whole psalm. It's a short one. This is the theology of David, an imperfect person, but somebody used redemptively, a shepherd who said, but there's a greater power that I look to. And this is Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? So to the person overwhelmed with sin, personally or in the world, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He's living out of the Genesis 1 narrative, not the Genesis 4 narrative. My help comes from the one who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade and your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forevermore. The hope of the biblical story is that we live in a world with takers and we're tempted to become takers, but God is a keeper. And so, so we're born into the Genesis 2 to 4 reality, a world where corruption has sprung out of the darkness and overtaken us. And we're wanting to get back to Genesis 1. Is there, is there power that's benevolent? Is there goodness? Is there wisdom in the ordering of things? And David and those in his tradition said, the Lord is my keeper. He's the one who watches over me. And so I'm going to trust him. It's by faith that we live in Genesis 1, not in Genesis 4. And so here's the last thing that I want to say. The third thing, we have a good shepherd who remembers us. So we're overwhelmed by sin. We need somebody to lead us. But, but here's where the, the, the biblical story, and we need to remember this as we're going through the book of Ecclesiastes. We have a good shepherd who remembers us. So I've said that names are important. And so the word Cain, he's named ironically. He's the one who, who goes and gets. Um, think about Eve's experience. We can only speculate about this. But in Genesis, Genesis 3, when Eve and Adam fail, and, and they realize it, and they're ashamed, and they've brought death into the world, God says, one of your seed, one of your offspring, one of your descendants will crush the head of the serpent, the, the one from whom evil was launched into this world. Evil will be stamped out, one of your offspring. And maybe when Cain was born, she thought, I've, I've gotten the one from the Lord. What good news. Uh, the Lord has been faithful to his promise. And then she has Abel. And then Cain kills Abel. So now there's no good descendant. And how can Abel be the one who will rule over evil when evil has overtaken him? And so you can imagine Eve possibly being confused. What did I do? <laughs> Lord, I didn't trust you, and now I don't understand. You, you, you gave me this promise. And so the last two verses we read where Seth is named, verse 25, she bears another son, and his name is Seth, because she says, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Abel killed him. She names the tragedy. Cain killed Abel. The one who gets has killed Abel. But here's Seth, whose name means appointed. And you follow Genesis, and Seth leads to the line of Noah, who leads to the line of Abraham, who leads to the line of Jacob, who leads, and it, you follow eventually till it gets to Jesus. Um, but it seems like all is lost. The one who I thought was the one who would deliver us killed the other one. So now we don't have a deliverer, and now evil is at work. But later on in Eve's life, Seth comes, the one who is appointed. God has a plan. Every time it seems that evil is stronger and wins, God needs to be in there. In Ecclesiastes, it always seems that darkness is going to overtake us, that, that death can't be defeated. 
and we have to wait on the promise. Now, I've said that names are important. Cain means to get. Seth means appoint. What does Abel mean? And just an interesting component of the story is it, it doesn't tell us. The Hebrew word hevel, <laughs> that's his name. Um, Abel never speaks in this story. Abel's name is never described to us. And, and what does the word hevel mean in Hebrew? It's, it means breath. It means vapor. Kind of like what FT talked about earlier, ephemeral. <laughs> who is Abel? Abel is the one uh, who reminds us of the fleeting nature of life. See, in Genesis 2, God forms humanity. He breathes into him. The Hebrew word is ruach, his spirit. It's a life-giving breath. Hevel is like the exhale, that on a cold day you can see, but you can't grasp it. And when it's not cold, you don't even know that it's there. Abel is not the one who has the ruach poured into him. He's the one who has the gasp of life taken from him. And the word hevel, which could mean vapor or breath, uh, takes on translations like absurd or vanity or meaningless. Uh, we're going into the book of Ecclesiastes where, where this guy who's trying to look for the wisdom of life, he keeps coming back to this refrain that we read over and over again in our translation, the ESV, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. We could say it's a vapor, life is a vapor. He's saying hevel, everything is hevel. Um, that's Abel's name. What does Abel mean? Abel means vapor, breath, absurd, meaningless. The story of Genesis 4 is a paradigm of, of how evil gets unleashed in our world, and it leaves anyone wanting a good, meaningful life, anyone concerned for justice, for morality, for the joy of God, wondering, we haven't heard from Abel. We don't know about him. What we know in this world is Cain, the one who takes. And as we read through Ecclesiastes, we're going to see this person who, who in his mind, he may not be thinking about the human being Abel, but he keeps saying, Hevel, every time I try for something, it's like Hevel. And you know, of the various struggles we have these days, the pandemic, the death toll, uh, what it's doing to our economy, to our routines of life, but also uh, how we're facing injustice. You know, one of the things of, of watching a video like George Floyd being killed, it's so destabilizing, it's so discouraging to think here's a guy who's, whose life was cut short. And, and, and it's confusing and it's disheartening. And the community that, that said we're going to organize to, to, to remember so his life is not in vain, so some of the marches that started in June, as they would march, they would chant, say his name. George Floyd, say his name. That's such a human concern that, that our lives are so fleeting that this could happen to any of us, that you wake up one morning and, and you think today will be a normal day and then, and then you're cut down and then you're forgotten and your, your life is like the breath. And, and if that's the case, why does anything matter? Why, why would my work matter? Why does productivity matter? Is there a thing even such as joy? And so in these, in these marches, say her name, Rihanna Taylor. Uh, in the, in the face of injustice, we, we can't allow people to be silenced and forgotten. And so what can we do? We, we try to say the name, but there's something, something fleeting about it. So we resume normal life, and, and will these people be forgotten? 
Because if they will, what does that say for any of us? That our lives are as fleeting. There's something painful about seeing injustice if we realize our own vulnerability of the world. And in the book, in the Old Testament, this story is so profound in giving a picture of humanity, and yet Abel is never named again in the whole of the Old Testament. The story is not there. But we have in the book of Ecclesiastes somebody, whether he intends to or not, who keeps saying, Abel, everything is Abel. And there's a sense in which the shepherd hasn't forgotten those who have been silenced, those who have been cut down, those who whose names have not been explained for us. And there's a certain sense in which the book of Ecclesiastes is a lament for Abel. It's somebody who comes into this Genesis 4 world and says, I want Genesis 1, I want goodness, and I want power, and I want light. And what do I get is I get, I get the unleashing of evil that overcomes me and those around me. And so will anyone lead us through? And the book of Ecclesiastes is an important part on the journey. There's wisdom given where he says, you're better off going into the house of mourning than to the house of joy because you'll understand something about God and what he's doing in the world. And so you read through Ecclesiastes and you get to the New Testament and then you realize on the lips of Jesus, Abel is not forgotten. Abel is cut down in Genesis 4 and we don't hear of him again except he's alluded to by a struggling person who without knowing it, calls his name because everything is like Abel. And then Jesus, knowing in in Matthew 23 that he is about to be sacrificed, like he's a lamb, he says this generation from the blood of Abel to Zechariah the prophet will be accountable for all of the blood that's been spilled. And when God comes to Cain and says, the blood of Abel is crying out, we learn that humanity forgets. But God doesn't. God sees the righteous and the upright and those who love him and those who trusted him. So in the book of Hebrew, Hebrews, Abel is named again because he's part of that community of faith that has never been forgotten by God. And so in Hebrews 11, we are told there's an invisible reality. There's a crowd, a cloud of witnesses that were surrounded by this reality we don't see. And this is the book of Ecclesiastes. All that I can see, I can't grasp. And Hebrews says, trust God. <laughs> so in Hebrews 11, We read, speaking of Abel, through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. (laughs) So he speaks, his blood calls out for justice. But the person trying to live by faith knows that, that staying with God is not futile. So in Hebrews 12, read and reflect on Hebrews 12 this week and think about it in light of Genesis 4, the warning not to let sin overtake you the warning to offer a good sacrifice, the warning to keep going and not get discouraged. Read Genesis 4, read Hebrews 12. They don't have a lot in common, but when you get the stories, they have a lot in common. In Genesis 12, so Hebrews, uh, uh, sorry, Hebrews 12, Hebrews 11, Abel still speaks by faith. Hebrews 12, 24, we have not come to Mount Sinai. Mount Zion. We have not come to the earthly Jerusalem, the the city that we can see and touch, but we've come to something heavenly. We've come to a reality. We've come to worship that's glorious. We've come to a community of faith. In Hebrews 12, 24, it says, you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And and that's the story. There's a better word Abel is not silenced. He is not forgotten. 
God sees those are his. Cain doesn't win. But Cain is sent to wander with the hope that, that he himself might see one day that there's a better word. And what does the blood of Abel cry out? It cries, how long, O Lord? It cries, I want justice. And the blood of Jesus who comes and was shed as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep is now sprinkled on his people. And it speaks a better word because this word says, forgive. See, the blood of Abel said God needed to, to send Cain away from his presence. The blood of Jesus says God wants you to come back. God calls the wanderer and he makes it possible because the blood of Jesus speaks of forgiveness because Abel offered a sacrifice that was pleasing, but he offered something else in his own place. Jesus offered himself in our place. And though his life was taken by those who were tempted in the way that Cain was, God's purpose was that his blood would speak a better word. And so what I want to leave you today is if you find yourself like the author of Ecclesiastes, crying out, everything is vapor, it's mist. If you find yourself feeling, I don't have the breath of life coming into me, I have the breath of life going out of me. I'm overwhelmed. I'm just tired and weary. Injustice troubles me. I don't feel productive. I'm confused. All of the things that are part of this life in a sharpened way in this season, we're going to go week through week of a man who's saying, Abel, let's remember Abel. And we remember him knowing that there's a better word. All of this is given to us by a good shepherd who will speak on our behalf. And so I want to say two things in closing. One is, if you are overwhelmed because you feel like your life is like Abel, that no matter what you're trying, sin out there in the world is overwhelming you. Remember that even if you feel powerless to speak in your own behalf, even if people don't know your name and your story, God takes note of what's going on. And there's a better word spoken on your behalf than you can speak for yourself or that any of us can speak for you. And it's the blood of Jesus who speaks a better word than the word of Abel. He sees you. He knows you. Your life is not meaningless. Jesus is your advocate. But most of us will recognize that, that we are more like Cain than we are willing to concede. And so the fearful day when God comes and asks us about our lives, so why don't you tell me what you've been doing? And we will be tempted to be like Cain, to speak a word that we think can fool God, or to speak a word that in spite we think will satisfy us, to, to, to say something snarky or distracting or to cast blame. And what we're told is you don't need to keep going down the path of wandering. You don't need to keep hating and resenting and spiting and hiding and making excuses. But there's a better word than anything you can say. And so if your fear is that I will stand before God and God will ask how I've lived my life and I will have no idea what to say without lying or trying to blame or trying to distract, know that you should be slow to speak and quick to listen because there's a better word that Jesus will speak on your behalf. And that's the nature of the gospel, which is at the end of the day, you don't need to defend the wrong that you've done. But Jesus, who offers forgiveness, will show mercy to those who are willing to, to put aside the wrong that they've done and to stop wandering and to settle in the community of faith, to root themselves in Christ, to believe that he is taking us somewhere and that life is not a vapor, but rather than breathing out, uh, Jesus will breathe the Ruach, the Spirit, into us. And as we go and we struggle, when we start to say, I, I don't know what to say, I don't know how to understand this, everything seems like it's going, remember 
that there's a better word. And so listen to the good shepherd who will speak that word to you. He will speak that word about you. He will speak that word on your behalf before the evil and before the goodness of God. And so there's a better word. It's the word of Jesus. And so trust him. He is taking us somewhere. And let's live in that Genesis 1 narrative and not feel overwhelmed that the story of Genesis 4 will define our reality. That's what we're spending the next few months talking about. I'm going to close our time in prayer. Our Father, we come to you as strugglers, and some of us are struggling in simple ways, just with the monotony of this period. Some of us are overwhelmed by death, by injustice, by anger. We're overwhelmed by feeling silenced. We're overwhelmed by being unknown and feeling that our stories can't be told. We're overwhelmed with trying to be good, but constantly allowing our shame to cause us to do the next damaging thing. Lord, we don't want to live in that reality. We don't want to live a life that we grasp for what is ephemeral, but we want what is eternal. And so, Lord, by your Spirit, breathe life into us, renew us, that our cry, our deep cry, would not be that everything is able, that everything is meaningless. But as we remember able, we would remember that everything is hopeful because you are a good shepherd. Um, will keep us. You will watch over us. You are our protector and you're leading us somewhere. Help us to follow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.